When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah, how was your weekend? It was great. I had, so my birthday was on Sunday, and I had a, you know, good, good 36 hours of celebration bookended by soccer. We started with the Liverpool game, which ended in a 3-3 tie, and then I had a 9 p.m., well, we had a 9 p.m. soccer game that also ended in a 3-3 tie, so we're basically just like Liverpool. We're basically just like Liverpool. Ashley and I are uh, new English Premier League fans, so if you've got any tips or... Or we, we've already chosen Liverpool, so sorry if that's <laughs> not good for you. But it, it was a great weekend, a lot of fun, except for playing soccer. I, you know, COVID was rough on my cardiovascular system. Yeah. Um, not I didn't actually have COVID, but just the pandemic. I've not done a lot of exercise, so that was certainly a shock to the system. I'm much. Ha- it was a double header too. Yes. Two games right in a row, and so I'm, that was a little brutal. And I'm back in my more natural habitat of recording podcasts and drinking at the same time. <laughs> Uh, before we talk about those drinks, who are we talking to this week? We're talking with a familiar uh, voice on the show, We're talking to Colleen Deli this week, who is the host of the Inside the Vatican podcast on America Media's podcast network and also an associate editor here in America. And she recently authored a really brilliant cover story in America's special issue on women in the church. That's right. It was titled, Women Are Rising to New Heights at the Vatican. Could They Change the Church Forever? Uh, so a really great piece where she talked to four or five women in leadership positions at the Vatican with different perspectives. Some of what one was a former former employee was a little more critical. Others were, you know, holding new positions of power that have never been held by women before and and really do see Pope Francis following through on his promise to to get women's voices heard at the Vatican. Um, and Colleen is the perfect person to report this story. Yeah, I really appreciated Colleen's perspective because we get into it a little bit about whether or not we like what it's like to even have this conversation as a particularly as a young woman. Like it feels in some ways like a very old conversation. Like, can women have leadership positions in the church? Well, I'm 31 now, so I'm I'm used to the old <laughs> the old conversation. Fair, fair, but um, it's really insightful. So stick around for that conversation with Colleen Deli on women leading in the Vatican. Yes, and Colleen chose our drink this week, which is very appropriate for a Vatican conversation. We're having Aperol Spritz. Yes, I had a lot of these when I studied abroad in Rome. Um, it's a very, it's a nice like end of the work day start, mm-hmm. uh, start of your evening kind of drink. Yes, and very pretty. It is, it is gorgeous. All right, the Roman cheers. light just like shines through it. It's, it's, it's magical. <laughs> All right. But before we get to our conversation with Colleen, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? This past Sunday, September 26th, was the World Day of Migrants and Refugees, which I didn't realize. I mean, 
we talk about this every year, but I, this is one of the many things I forget annually is that it's been celebrated by the church since 1914. So this Yeah, is, no, that surprised me. I saw this is the 107th because I was trying to Google like, when did, did Pope Francis start this or what? But no, it started during, you know, World War One when there was kind of the first of the modern refugee crises and the church was on top of it then as it is now. Yes. And so the theme for this year's message from Pope Francis was towards an ever wider we. So he says that today's migration movements offer an opportunity for us to overcome our fears and let ourselves be enriched by the diversity of each person's gifts. And then if we so desire, we can transform borders into privileged places of encounter, um, which I think... (laughs) is a hopeful thing, but certainly at the moment, the borders are not, I would say, privileged places of encounter that the Pope is speaking of right now. Right. So this World Day of Migrants comes amid yet another crisis at the U.S. border. It seems like every couple of years, there's, um, you know, the border comes back into the headlines and back into our consciences. And we have this conversation that doesn't seem to change year after year. Um, So we wanted to bring on our colleague, Kevin Clark, who's the chief correspondent here at America, who recently wrote about this latest iteration when thousands of Haitian asylum seekers who had gathered at the border in Texas were deported. So, Kevin, welcome to Jesuitical. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. Now, this issue sort of rose to a a boiling point, at least on social media, because of these viral images that circulated of Border Patrol agents um, with things that looked like whips. They weren't necessarily whipping the migrants, but it doesn't seem like they were... uh, welcoming them with open arms in a in a place of encounter as the pope was saying correct no i think i think that's fair to say and um the i think the photographer who caught those images uh later um informed folks that that he didn't actually see anyone whipped let's just be clear about that they were not whips the the border patrol was not riding around whipping people uh they were using the reins i guess occasionally in aggressive manner they were twirling the reins i I understand this is a a crowd control measure or or it encourages the horses to to move forward my sense was though that you know i felt felt it was sort of perhaps unfair to blame the border patrol for what was happening that was my sense of it because you know after all what is their job is to keep people from crossing the border without who don't have documentation or or from crossing the border in places like uh, just outside Del Rio Texas from under a, a bridge overpass so the border patrol's job is to stop that from happening yeah so they did that and uh, it was bound to not look great you know yeah what do, what do we know about the people who were were captured in this, in these photographs, the the Haitians, um, what were they? What were they fleeing? Uh, what kind of journey have they been on? Well, I'm sure there's you know probably fourteen thousand different stories there, but it's uh, it seems like uh, many of them had come up from as far south as Chile and Brazil, uh, and the, the sense they had was if we come up to the border, you know, there's a new president, he's going to let us in, and everything's going to be fine. Uh, you know, we don't have to worry about Trump anymore. So, because, you know, these folks started this journey months ago. This is not something that happened over the weekend. They've been traveling for many of them many, many weeks just to reach the border. A lot of them liquidated everything, every asset they had, every bank account they had to to pay for themselves and their families to to make it up to the Mexico-US border. Uh, Some of them had fairly decent lives in Chile and Brazil. Many of them had left Haiti uh, after the 2010 earthquake, which was, you know, devastating both from a humanitarian perspective and from an economic perspective. So these are folks who haven't really lived in Haiti in a long time. These are not necessarily folks who came from Haiti after the most recent earthquake, although it's not impossible. 
Well, what what is life like there now? Because you mentioned the 2010 earthquake, but there's been even more turmoil since then that people are going to be when we've deported them. That's what they're going to encounter. Well, a lot of um, a lot of people would say this was an illegal deportation because you, you're not you're not technically allowed to deport people into a an unsettled or dangerous uh, situation. And and I don't think anyone could argue that the state that Haiti is in right now is really such that it could you know accept. Uh, repatriation. Um, they just had another earthquake. They had another tropical storm. Their president was just assassinated. The economy is in turmoil. Uh, criminal gangs are running the streets. They can't even get aid uh, supplies through to the countryside. Haiti is a mess. I mean, it's not exactly had good circumstances over the last few decades, but it's particularly acutely bad there right now. I wonder if we could pivot a little bit towards what are some of the causes of this? Because I think a lot of people were frustrated by the previous administration's stance towards immigration. There was a plenty of anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies that were enacted, and people thought maybe this was going to get better. Um, at least there was some rhetoric I- initially in the campaigns that made it sound like we'd be open to being more welcome to a, a, a immigrants at our border. But obviously, there have been you know other news stories. Thinking of Kamala Harris. Um, don't do not come here. Um, that that moment a few months ago when she said that. Uh, what's going on? Is has anything changed in the last like uh, year and a half, five years, ten years, twenty years? Well, the the way we handle immigration in the United States has not fundamentally changed in oh uh, you know probably not since 1986. The United States is a country that has um, a lot of neighbors who have a lot of economic and social problems. The classic. Uh, issues that propel migration. You know, Mexico for many years has been the largest uh, contributor of migrant people into the United States. That's no longer the case. In fact, some years there's a, a negative flow back into Mexico from the United States. But we are seeing more and more people coming from the Northern Triangle states of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras uh, because of the the political and social uh, unsettledness there, uh, the economic problems there. And uh, now we're seeing people coming from Venezuela, from Nicaragua, uh, all of these countries where not just economic problems are happening, but uh, severe um, political turmoil or repression is taking place. Uh, criminal gangs are making lives impossible for, for, for people who just want to go about you know, normal lives. So America is still seen as a, as a as a refuge and a hope for those folks. And thousands of them every week are trying to to reach um, the United States to escape those those problems. And these are you know the classic reasons people migrate throughout history uh, when conditions become so uh, intolerable in your homeland that you you have to look elsewhere to have a, a normal life. So um, you know it's it's a question of looking at the entire. Uh, immigration package and ask if we have the kind of package that makes sense for the 21st century, that makes sense for this hemisphere under the conditions that this hemisphere is experiencing. Because we can spend all the money we went on on enforcement, and we have, but it's not going to stop people from going to the border if where they're leaving from is so much worse than what the, the what they perceive is going to be the the danger and the uh, the stress of traveling. And clearly, people under unbelievably horrendous circumstances are sometimes walking to the U.S. border from Central America and further south. Now, from a Catholic perspective, the church's position is if people need to move, they have the right to move. If people need to migrate, they have the right to migrate. And what the church considers the right to migrate or the need to migrate is when 
you, you can't put bread on the table for your children when you feel like your life is threatened because of your government or because of criminal gangs. These are all legitimate reasons to, to leave your home country behind. The church also believes that people have the right to stay put uh, if, they, if they want to, that, that we should assist in making conditions prevail that will allow people to remain in the, in the countries of their birth if they want to do that. But um, the, the church would say, I think, uh, that the border is not a sacrosanct. It, the border is an imaginary thing. You know, There's no borders uh, in God's creation. Man creates the borders. So they don't have primacy over, over human need or human dignity. Hmm. You mentioned you know, the first step is changing public opinion or else everything you're talking about is just politically unrealistic. So if you know if you could make the case to Catholics of why they should care and why they should be open to a more generous migration and refugee uh, policy, what what would you say? Well, um, remember when you were strangers in a strange land yourselves? I would say right off the bat, it's kind of hilarious to meet Catholics, uh, virtually all of whom came here as refugees from political or economic distress in their home countries not that long ago either, in the grand scheme of things, who seem to have forgotten their own immigrant roots and have nothing but antipathy for, for modern uh, uh, migrant folk who are trying to escape equally awful circumstances in their home countries to come to the United States. He is Kevin Clark, and he you can read all of his reporting and analysis at americamagazine.org. The latest article, which is linked wherever you're listening to this, is Horrified by Images of Border Patrol Abusing Haitian Migrants, Blame Decades of Dangerous Immigration Policy. Kevin, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks, as always, for having me. Joining us from New Orleans is Colleen Dully. Colleen is an associate editor at America Media, the host of the Inside the Vatican podcast, and the author of the cover story for America's special Women in the Church issued. That's titled, Women are Rising to New Heights at the Vatican. Could they change the church forever? Welcome back to Jesuitical, Colleen. It's been a while. It's been so long. <laughs> I know. We just we rely on your Vatican analysis yeah. so much. Uh, it's so it's... good to be back with you, though. You know, I've loved this podcast since, like, day one. So to be among the young, hip, and lay it's, makes me very happy. It's true. <laughs> um, and you are, when you came on as an O'Hare fellow, you, I, I remember, like, tweeting or something like that you had found the Jesuitical liquor cabinet on like day day two or three of your day, time in office. So you, you knew what you were looking for when you came Snapchat here. I think it was a Snapchat story. Oh, okay. So less public. I've made but it public yes. now. Um, and, and now look at where we all are. Yeah. Uh, so really excited um, for to talk to you about this because you wrote this amazing cover story about a topic that gets, I don't know, sort of it comes up in the news here and there and no one's really done like a broad overview of women getting appointed to leadership positions in the Vatican. It's sort of been happening piecemeal and, you know, we look at it every now and then. But I thought this was uh, really useful. But before we get into that, I, we did want to ask for your take on the where the Vatican's uh, second commission on women deacons is standing right now, because last week we talked to we had an episode um, with Casey Stanton. If you haven't listened to that, go back and do it now. Um, and we really got into sort of like her personal discernment about this. But there is some action happening right now in Rome. Yes. 
Yeah, they're actually talking about it again. So uh, Pope Francis named some new members to a second commission to study women deacons. The first commission had been tasked with the question of studying the historical question of women deacons. And basically, they weren't able to come to a consensus. um, So like whether or not there were women deacons in well, I think church. it was about their roles, but honestly, we don't know a ton because uh, no one's seen the final report that they gave to the Pope, and they're not really allowed to talk about it. And that's kind of the same with this new committee. We don't know much about what happened in their meeting last week that happened September 13th through 17th. Uh, but what we do know is that they were tasked with a slightly different question. They're asked to look at the pastoral need and kind of the role of deacons in the church right now and whether there is a pastoral need for women to be ordained to the diaconate in the future, which, you know, you can take as a sign of hope. I think there's there's a little bit more openness, at least in the mandate they've been given. Well, do you think so? What we Last week when we talked to Casey, you know, kind of her argument is like we need to open up this conversation very broadly um, beyond a committee with a secret final report yeah, and right. really, really hear from from women and 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 pastors and just everyone in the life of the church that this would affect. So do you think is that is that in the cards going forward? Is that going to be part of the conversation during this synodal process over the next two years that Pope Francis has called for? Or do you suspect that this is just going to end in another final report that we may or may not hear about. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Uh, I can't predict the future. But what I do know is that so far, it has been brought up at the last few synods, right? We had conversation about it at the Synod on the Amazon, for example. And we know that the topic of this upcoming synodal process that's supposed to have like a local and then national and then uh, continental and then global phase over the next two years, it's, it's focused on synodality in think communion, participation, and mission. And so if you look at those participation and mission questions, it's like, well, yeah, I I would be surprised if the question of the diaconate didn't come up in that. Or at least women um, in the church, right? Like that's clearly going to be. Yeah, both, both. So I I think that, yeah, I would be really surprised if we didn't hear some conversation about it. The question is just how that's going to play out in decisions at the end of the synod. Now, shifting a little bit to your cover story, um, I'm wondering if you could just Tell us what your first impressions were when you were assigned this, because I know um, it's a, an issue you've been studying. But uh, it, had you before you were asked to, you know, do this broad overview of women in leadership at the Vatican, did you have any preconceived ideas or thoughts on if it was getting better, worse, um, or what the general state of things were? Um, yeah, I I think I was really interested to see how it's been changing, especially in the last few years. And I think especially during COVID, we saw Pope Francis elevate a lot of women to positions they had never been in before. He really seemed to think that women leaders uh, of nations, but also especially in the field of economics, had like the roadmap for getting us to a better post-COVID future. I'm definitely like among those who is sort of cheering when there's a new appointment made every few months. But There was a quote from one woman who was appointed a few years ago that's always stuck with me where she says, you know, I can't wait until this is not a story. I'm I fall there. I I can't wait till this is not a story, but we're not there yet. And so I was really excited to be assigned this this cover story. And I was really uh, excited to be trusted with a cover story, too. Yeah. So, yeah, where the story is right now is that there is a record number of women working at the Vatican and in new positions of leadership at the Vatican. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to go back in t- uh, 2013. America and other Jesuit publications 
had an interview with Pope Francis, his full, like, really extensive interview of his papacy. And he talks about women in the church uh, in, in that interview. Uh, one quote is, it is necessary to broaden the opportunities for a stronger presence of women in the church. And later, the challenge today is this, to think about the specific place of women also in those places where the authority of the church is exercised for various areas of the church. So, like, if that is the standard that Pope Francis uh, kind of set for himself and for the, his vision of the church, uh, how do you grade his progress in the past, what is it, eight eight years? I mean, he certainly has uh, assigned, uh, appointed a lot more women to uh, roles that have never been held by women in the Vatican before. And he really accelerated kind of the rate of those appointments. So like if we look back at women in leadership positions in the Vatican, the first one was appointed under John Paul II. And then we didn't see any more appointed under Benedict. Uh, and then we got to Francis and he he appointed uh, several more. And yeah, so so I think that he's definitely made progress. I think that we'll probably also talk a little bit more later on about how his attitude personally seems to have changed a lot, at least in my view, over the last few years. Like when you started reading that quote from him, I was a little bit like, oh, gosh, what quote are they going to read? Because mm -hmm. early in his papacy, there were a lot of quotes that were, you know, women were not super happy with. Can you can you give some examples? Yeah, like one that always comes to mind is when he was speaking to a group of female theologians and he he was trying to make the case for including more women uh, in in the area of theology. But what he ended up saying was that women are like the strawberries on the cake, right? They're really good, but we want more. Uh, but the way that it came off was, oh, women are kind of this this pretty decoration, not not super serious, not an integral part of the cake, you know? So... But over time, and I think especially during COVID, like I said, uh, he's he's really prioritized putting women in positions of leadership. But also, I think that his view personally towards women has has changed, or at least is being expressed differently now. Now, I feel like we should kind of set the stage a little bit because we take a lot of things for granted in these conversations. And we should say up front, the Vatican is a totally unique animal and the way it operates and what working looks like. Um, could you just like set the stage? Like, because uh, we're using words like appointed, elevated. Yeah, right, um, right. Who typically works at the Vatican? Are they, you know, presumably we're talking the context of most of them are men, mm -hmm. um, but are they mostly bishops, priests, laymen? Yeah, around 22% of Vatican employees, so about a thousand people uh, who work in the Vatican are women. And I think that number is pre-COVID. I think it's from 2019. So if we look at the number of women working around the world, we know that those numbers have fallen in most places. I wouldn't be surprised if they've also fallen in the Vatican. As for the kind of jobs that they're holding, a lot of them are in like housekeeping jobs in the houses of bishops. Those are held by nuns a lot. Uh, and then there are a ton of women just working various clerical jobs in different offices, helping things run either in the Roman Curia. No pun intended on the clerical. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of women holding clerical jobs in various offices. Uh, and that's both in the Roman Curia, which is kind of the churchy stuff. And that's where most of our conversations about women in power take place. There's also the whole Vatican city state, which is just like the regular operation stuff. The Vatican museums, which are headed by a woman, uh, fall into that category. So like very different things here. But focusing just on the churchy stuff, um, we are seeing... Like the Curia like is the thing that is most likely to affect 
in everyday Catholic oh, yeah, like, sure. day-to-day life. Yeah, totally. Right? The rest is just kind of like functioning of the Vatican as a as, as a city-state. As yeah, said, as like ways. a place that tourists come or as just like a place of administration. Yeah. So, you know, we often hear that the church is not a democracy. Is the Vatican like a meritocracy? Like, do people rise up through the ranks or is it all centralized and basically Pope Francis decides who's where? It's definitely like more of a Pope Francis deciding who's where than any situation that you or I are used to. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely this like corporate culture in the Vatican where you're not supposed to put yourself forward for promotions. That's really looked down on. Uh, The example that I always give is like Jesuits make a vow not to ambition to higher office. They make ambition into a verb. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of that way, you know, for all employees in the Vatican. There's this idea of servant leadership. And so power isn't something that you aspire to. And in fact, when you're put into a position of power, you're supposed to see it as a position of service. Right. That's part of your article I wanted to get into it because it is that when you're having these conversations about empowering women in the church, Mm -hmm. um, you're like struck with this tension between, yeah, seeing your role as as one of a servant, but then also in this uncomfortable position where it's like, oh, women are actually better because they're working in servile roles yeah, like we, it's weird they don't need right? to be grasping for power like all those like well and the other uh, thing cardinals. is it just means that you don't end up having much of a culture or like many discussions about women's empowerment it's just not seen as a priority so yeah we can talk about like that's that obviously it's problematic especially for for us as people like you know american young women ashley but mm-hmm. uh yeah, it's 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 interesting kind of the the effect that that has on Vatican employees. Like usually then the way that you're going to be appointed is just like work really hard and hope somebody notices. Hmm. Now, what cards on the table like women are never going to like I guess I, no, let me rephrase this. So to like frame it in another way. Mm hmm. Women are prohibited by virtue of their sex from holding a number of appointments and offices at the Vatican mm-hmm. currently, including, you know, CEO, Roman Pontiff, Vicar of Christ. <laughs> so based yeah. on that, what does, you know, what does justice look like within that reality? Right. How what does like truly involving women? Is it like, OK, one day we're going to hit 50 percent men work there, 50 percent women work there. And then, aha, we are done and it won't be a news story anymore. Or is there some mm. other way to like measure progress? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are many ways to measure progress. Um, a lot of them come off as being unsatisfactory to us. Um, the one that I hear a lot among women who work in the Vatican, and I guess people who work in the Vatican more generally, is this idea of making women's voices heard. So like a lot of uh, work in the Vatican is super collaborative. So even just the like just having a woman at the table in the conversation is going to impact your work quite a lot. To get back to your question about like justice though, and and I guess what like equality would look like in this situation, um, I just wanted to like bring up a couple of ideas that that get thrown around a lot. One is the idea, you know, okay, so first there will always be people who are like, women need to be ordained to be equal and will never reach equality. But there's a whole other camp that's also saying not every 
position of leadership that is reserved to an ordained person right now necessarily needs to be that. So like in theory right now, you could have a woman be a prefect, which is the top position in a Vatican congregation, a Vatican office. And we do, we have a lay male head right now. So that could happen, right? Other dicasteries offices that are more related to the church's pastoral work they they might need an ordained head because it's more related to the work of a pastor. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, so there are definitely people who think that. I actually don't think that the idea of like achieving 50-50 gender parity is crazy for the Vatican. Right now we're about 22%, like I said. When you look at the membership of the church uh, being more than half women, so many parish administrators and leaders being women and catechists, like the people who are right now responsible for passing on the faith are majority women. And uh, and I think that when you look at that, and then you also look at the possible rethinking of some of these uh, these roles, that's like 50-50 then doesn't, doesn't seem so crazy a milestone to shoot for, even if it may be a long way off numerically for the Vatican. Having spoken to a number of the women in these leadership positions at the Vatican, what, what was the sense you got about how they kind of conceive of their role and whether what do they feel like their voices are getting heard? Do they feel frustrated by the all the things that um, what you call in the piece, the stained glass ceiling prevent them from rising to? Yeah. Or is it or are do they feel like empowered and their gifts are being valued? Well, uh, they have different attitudes. So one person I talked to, Christiane Murray, she works in the Holy See Press office. So probably by virtue of that, you can expect that she has more of a like PR type of, you know, presentation of what the situation is like. But even she said, you know, she's been working at the Vatican since 1995. And when she started there, she said that the bishops and the the clergy who she was working with were often kind of just as intimidated by her as she was by them. Um Nowadays, she sees a lot more women working in the Vatican, especially in her office. It's majority women in the communications department. Um, and she is definitely, like I think, an archetype of somebody who has worked really hard and had that work recognized and been appointed. She's now the number two person in the uh in the press office. So that's really big. Like the first woman to hold that job was her immediate predecessor. And the Pope told the press that he had to fight some internal resistance to get a woman into that job. But then there are other women who are a lot more critical. Um, I talked to one person who's inside the Vatican on this and one person who used to be and left because she was so frustrated. Um, the second one was Lucetta Scarafia, who I mentioned before, who ran the Vatican's women's newspaper and reported on nuns having their labor abuse and sometimes being sexually abused and was told not to report on that. And she got so fed up with this that she left. But I also talked to Sister Natalie Bacar, who is holding a high up position in the Synod of Bishops. Uh, and she, from day one, she got up at the press conference announcing her appointment and uh, answering questions from journalists, she said that she thinks that her appointment is a sign that the patriarchal mindset is changing, but that there's still a long way to go. And so like now to have somebody working in the Vatican who's calling out the patriarchy by name from, you know, the Vatican's press office microphone, uh, that feels like a big change to me. And we're waiting to see if Sister Natalie is going to be able to vote in the synod or in this upcoming synod, right? 
Yeah, right. This is a this has been a big question. So up to now, uh, it's only been ordained men who were able to vote in synods. And then I think a few synods ago, on accident, there was uh, one lay brother who was the head of his religious order who was then allowed to vote kind of on accident. But then nothing blew was, up. And- yeah, because he was allowed to vote uh, and and was a lay person, a non-ordained person, right? Suddenly, this division was now one of sex and not of ordination status. And so, yeah, so so because of that, we've had a lot of calls for uh, the vote to be extended to women now too. Yeah, and there's a good chance that Sister Natalie will be allowed to do that. The Vatican won't commit to, to saying that yet, but a lot of people expect it to happen. Now, wondering if taking a step back, do you ever feel like this is a very weird conversation to even just be engaging in because oh like, yeah totally it's 2021 and it feels a little bit like we're you know having a conversation that like the first wave feminists had in mm-hmm. some ways it's like oh can women really work in the Vatican can women vote can women vote <laughs> like, uh, yeah we were just talking about right that happened about a hundred years ago in this country mm-hmm. and like for white women yeah and like what is that I don't know feel like on a more personal level like is it just like because I think a lot of people hear this and they're like, this is like totally ridiculous if the church is still, yeah. you know, you know, 50 to 100 years behind where the rest of the world is. Like, why am I even like having patience for them? Yeah, I get that. I mean, part of it is like it's my job and I like learning about this institution and understanding it and trying to figure it out on its terms so that I can make it comprehensible to others. Like, that's just a big part of the job. How do I feel about it personally? Uh, it's like frustrating. You know, I'm. I am a young woman who hopes to someday be a woman in the Vatican, not necessarily working for the Vatican, but like I would love to be there covering this institution. And so to to see this, I'm also like always sort of thinking about my future in a way and looking at like, well, gosh, what, what would this mean for me? And also what message is this sending to other women who might actually want to work in the Vatican and have all these gifts to offer, but but see, you know, kind of the the big gender disparities there, especially in leadership, and and know that it doesn't feel like enough. And to know that you'd be entering an environment that is I don't want to say hostile, but you know, that is not always immediately accepting of of women in in high up places or even in influential roles. One thing I think about from my own experience, so I grew up with my mom, you know, after a long career as an accountant, she ended up working for the Archdiocese of Washington as top like financial advisor to the cardinal. And so I, I saw her and I never and was just like, oh, so this is just the way things work. Women are in positions of power in the church. Um, and then my experience at America, I never felt like I was excluded from conversations because I'm a woman. I've always felt encouraged uh, and supported. But I I think I kind of took my own experience in the past and kind of was like, what's everyone complaining about? Yeah, sure. But, you know, in many ways, you know, I'm coming from a very privileged place. And so, you know, someone like my mom is going to be listened to. But there are a lot of voices that aren't. Like like you mentioned, all these women who are religious who work Mm -hmm. as basically servants. (laughs) And when someone tries to tell that story, she's reprimanded. So I think, yeah, broadening our idea of who, what women we're talking about when we're having these conversations is really important. 
Yeah, I think one thing that also like helps me understand why things change so slowly in the Vatican on this, but also on like a ton of other issues is, and Christiane Murray kept pointing to this when I interviewed her. She said, the Vatican is super multicultural. And so you're always having to reconcile viewpoints from people from very, very different perspectives, right? So you have people working in the Vatican who come from countries where women do not have equal rights, like by any stretch of the imagination. So oftentimes, like the Vatican feels really slow to us because it's trying to kind of pull along all different people. And so for us, that that feels like a pulling backward. For other people, it's a big pull forward. So I, I find it useful to keep in mind, even though it's also extremely frustrating. And I think it's okay for us to give voice to that too. I guess, and here's the frustrating thing is it just like, I think people when they're like, oh, there's a church change and it always gets bogged down in these questions of like magisterium and, you know, what's, you know, what degree of teaching something is. But yeah. a lot of the things that young people want to change in the church have nothing to do with church teaching in some right. ways. And so there's this just big frustration that Pope Francis is the person for appointing all of these these jobs. It's mm -hmm. like, OK, if he really wanted to, he could move a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, and that's the and, and that has nothing to do with, you know, some of the, the questions that always bog us down about church teaching on mm -hmm. things. This is just purely administrative. Yeah. One thing that uh, that one of my sources for the article recommended that I would also really like to see is um, she suggested appointing women religious like nuns who are heads of their religious congregations to be part of the Pope's Council of Cardinal Advisors, right? And you can talk about whether or not you want to make them cardinals. That would involve a change to canon law. Uh, not all cardinals have to be ordained priests, so it, it could happen. But just having women in that like core group of advisors would be a huge thing. And it's like, well, why isn't that happening right now? Why is it only cardinals advising the Pope? Yeah, and then on the flip side, I remember that like there's this story from the Times that was like you could, it's easier to find a man named John than it is a woman among Fortune 500 CEOs. Yeah, right. In the secular world, so I think yeah, but that's yeah, not no. an excuse. We should be better. No, exactly <laughs> right. Like the, you know, you can make those comparisons, but if you're if you're preaching this institution as your moral authority, you'd like to see it set a good example. Yeah. So we started with this with this quote from Pope Francis and his desire to to give women more positions of authority in the church. And I'm wondering, one, how you think he's, how he's changed in in terms of um, how he sees women, and two, what his end goal is, is do you think he's looking to make some of the changes you're talking about of just making it so that positions don't require ordination? Do you think he's trying to get to 50-50? <laughs> Where is this going? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'll talk first about how, how his view has changed, because I think this is really significant. So like I said at the beginning, you know, previously when the Pope or honestly, like most members of the hierarchy have talked about women, it it usually employs all of these like motherhood images, like fertility images, like sweetness and beauty and all this stuff that like as a person. The feminine genius. Yeah, a feminine genius that they never actually can like express define. or define mm -hmm. and that has always driven me crazy especially as like a person who was like raised by kind of a 1980s feminist my mom is like women and men have like the same skill sets and should be given the same opportunities and all this stuff and the catholic church like has this you know whole like teaching on 
complementarianism, right? Like this idea that like women and men are are complementary to each other. And like that also feels really weird as an American woman, like hearing that applied to corporate situations. I don't I don't love it. Um, but the Pope has kind of shifted towards this view, especially during COVID. And he expressed this in his book, Let Us Dream, which is all about like the post-COVID future, where he's like, women, and especially women economists, have a unique view that is shaped by their like lived experience of having the expectations placed on them of, you know, doing paid labor and also unpaid labor and doing those at the same time. And this gives them a perspective that is really unique and that and, we need. And being at the margins of the church. And right. Of, of yeah. you know, having been historically excluded from so many of these places. Yeah. And I find that to be like a lot more satisfying of an image of women to mm-hmm. to be going off of. But the place where I think that Francis is going with this and the place where my article ends up going with it is that basically Pope Francis is pushing us towards this model of synodality. We talked about the synod that's coming up Um And synodality is all about listening, right? Especially listening to those marginalized voices. That's what Sister Natalie Bacar from the Synod of Bishops told me. And so I see like a step forward here towards listening to women as marginalized people and trying to raise up those voices in this synodal process, but also in this like synodal model of the church that the Pope really seems to be pushing towards. So as for his end goal, I'm not totally sure. I don't know if 50-50 gender parity is a priority for the Pope. You know, he's he certainly hasn't said that. Um, but he is giving more power to women and specifically saying publicly that the reason he wants to do this is because of their marginalized perspectives. And that that seems like a step step forward to me. Colleen, thanks so much for coming on the show today and for unpacking all of this. And we're going to encourage people just again to go read this story. Um, and it's gonna be linked all over the place in the show notes and social media. Uh, but before we let you go, you've got to do this again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, male or female, who would it be and why? Okay, so for this one, I'm gonna go for the first ever full-time woman employed at the Vatican. Her name was Anna Pezzoli, and she worked uh, restoring tapestries in the Vatican. Uh, And she worked under a team of nuns. This was in 1915. So, like, think about this. You know, women cannot vote in Italy yet. They can't vote in most places. Uh, They just got, like, labor protections 13 years earlier in 1902. So here's Anna going to work at the Vatican. We don't know a ton about her, but we know that she was the first person, the first woman given a full-time employment contract in the Vatican. And the reason I think this story is cool is that her bosses were nuns. Her bosses were this team of nuns doing tapestry restoration. And I love that as an example of women opening doors for other women in the Vatican. So one thing that's always stuck with me from that interview that I did with Lucetta Scarafia in 2019 is she told me Pope Francis is opening doors for women, but it's up to women to walk through them. And she gave a few more examples. She was like, it's up to women to ask, why am I the only woman in this meeting? Which Christiane Murray told me happens to her all the time still. So, um, yeah, I just I love the idea that these nuns were like, no, we 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 want Anna to be able to work here. And so we're going to push for that. And uh, and yeah, I think that I don't know. So that's like so that's like Anna and the nuns. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I should canonize the nuns too. Let's let's do them all. 
All right. Well, Colleen, thank you so much. Um, you, you can find uh, people can find your work on Twitter and americamagazine.org. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show yet again. I'm sure yeah. we will talk soon. Thanks for bringing me on, and I always look forward to talking to you. Bye. As a young girl, it feels were mine. We played hide and seek for hours, raised our shadows among the pines. So offshore, playful and free, without a care in the world. I was hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So we wanted to draw your attention if you enjoyed last week's show with Casey Stanton talking about her discernment about women deacons. Uh, we do have an article from her on America's site right now that you should definitely check out. It's going to be linked in these show notes, but the headline is Catholic women feel called to be deacons. The church should listen to their story. So if you want to hear a little bit more from Casey in her own words, uh, definitely check that out. And if you missed that because it got published last week, um, it probably means you're not reading your emails that America Media is sending you. So if you aren't doing that, please go sign up for America's newsletter at americamagazine.org. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. And I think it, I'm up this week. You are up this week. We're So we're switching on and off a little bit. So I, I, I brought something last week. Yep. Um, you're bringing something this week. Yes. All right. So uh, to tell this story, I have to go back a little bit to the beginning of the pandemic, 2020, March, April. I was spending some time at my parents' home. And every week, they would try to get me to watch The Chosen with them, which is this really interesting pro- – now I say it's really interesting. But this – at the time, they were like, oh, it's this crowdfunded uh, drama that just re- like recreates the Gospels. And it's it's really good. It has like good production values. It's, uh, it's just like, that sounds cheesy. That yeah, sounds weird. No, it does sound <laughs> – yep, yep. <laughs> And uh, like I would like walk in, take a look, and be like, mm, "No, not for me. I don't. I don't watch like Jesus TV." Um, and then uh, America published a review about it, and it was someone who was a, in a very similar situation to me, whose whose Catholic aunt kept telling her, "You got to watch the Chosen. You got to watch the Chosen." And she finally broke down and watched it. And so I also finally broke down and watched it and just finished the first season last week. And I have to say, I was, you know, one, chastened that I it took me so long because it was an extremely moving experience. Um, I don't know 
how to describe it except for it, it opened up the gospel in a completely new way for me. Um, I have a, I have a bad imagination. I can't really picture Jesus. And so even though I know it's fake and it's actors seeing Jesus in this way, I was moved to tears in every single episode. Wow. Um, every single one? Every single one except for the last one. I don't know why the last one didn't really get to me. But well, no spoilers. Yeah, no, I won't spoil it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was the other thing. I was like, why am I going to watch a TV show when I know how it ends? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> surprise, he's risen. <laughs> um, but no, so, I, you know, one, everyone just watch it if you've been resisting it. But it that experience of resisting it did make me think about, you know, the times in our <laughs> lives when or in the times in my life, at least, where I've resisted a type of prayer because it didn't fit, like, my sense of what spirituality should look like. Um, so, like, I can't tell you how many times Jim Martin, our our friend here, Father Jim Martin, recommended to me, you know, imaginative prayer and trying to picture talking to Jesus. And I'd be like, mm, no, that's... Cannot do that. That's weird. And then it's like, mm, Eucharistic adoration, that's a little... But I don't know. That's that's not my style either. And so just like blocking these things off because of your preconceived notions about the kind of Catholic who might do that um, is something I realized I I was doing. And and watching this uh, this TV show, uh, it was you know a real moment of just changing my outlook. I do feel like you are a little justified in your skepticism of religious TV shows um, in that a lot of them are terrible. Um, but I do feel like you bring up a really important point because a lot of the times what we're hearing is, and we talked about this, uh, you know, praise you can, not as you can't last week um, or a couple, two weeks ago. Um, you know, it's important to to do whatever works. And oftentimes if someone suggests something, um, they're I, I've certainly seen situations where like, this is the only way to pray, right? You're not really praying if you're not doing like a rosary every day or something. And that's, of course, ridiculous. On the other hand, if someone's suggesting something to you in good faith and you are stubbornly like not open to it, then I don't know, maybe God is inviting you to do something that you don't want to do. Um, I now how to figure out which is which is, you know, that the proof is in the pudding there. So listeners, where one question I would leave with you is just what what has been a a spiritual practice or type of prayer that you've been maybe resisting and you know, maybe interrogate why that is and give it a shot. You don't if you don't like it, you only have to watch one episode or whatever the equivalent that it, of that is in a prayer or retreat, but I would highly recommend it. Well, listeners, while you're uh Thinking about that, I I think we have homework to do, which is maybe try to get the guy who plays Jesus on this show, Jonathan Rumi. Yes. Yeah, so the the show was not created by by a Catholic, but the man who plays Jesus is Catholic and is a very compelling Jesus. And he, every scene, he just makes you feel seen and like you're being hugged by your television. I would like love to, yeah, just know how you even get in that headspace of playing Jesus. I mean, I guess it's technically what we're asked to do every day as Christians, but it still seems impossible. Yeah. So listeners, uh, let us know if you've watched The Chosen, what you've thought about it, whether you think we should get Jonathan Rumi on the show. If you think we should, maybe tweet at him uh, and tag Jesuitical Show so we can make that happen. All right. Let's get out of here for another week. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our editor is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.